This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Here's a note up front. A few things are old here, and a few things are new. We are republishing this Chris Freeman interview to get it into our Nordic Nation podcast feed. The initial part of the interview was conducted in August 2016. Around 33 minutes in, you'll hear new content from our interview with Freeman on June 14, 2017. Freeman has managed type 1 diabetes as an elite endurance athlete. He's also a four-time Olympian and placed fourth twice in the 15K Classic at the 2003 and 2009 World Championships. On the political side of things, Freeman penned an op-ed in Faster Skier on May 24th titled The Substance of Perspective. In our new interview with Freeman, which again starts around the 33-minute mark, we explore his thoughts on the recently released Olympic selection criteria and the response he received from his op-ed. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Tell me how long that you have been cross-country skiing. I've been ski racing since I was five years old. Um, I've been... Uh, pursuing it professionally now for 16 years. I'm just curious, anything that you would want to talk about that you haven't addressed that having to do with type 1 diabetes? Diabetes in itself is a pretty common disease, but most people think of type 2 diabetes um, when they think of it. And uh, what I have and what most children with diabetes have is type 1 diabetes. And they are two entirely different diseases with similar symptoms. Type 2 diabetes is basically the is insulin resistance. The body still produces insulin. However, it no longer can utilize it efficiently. Um, if you think about insulin and sugar as a lock and key mechanism, and once the lock and key go together, they can go into the muscle cells and you can absorb glucose. When you have type 2 diabetes, those two, the insulin and the sugar basically bounce off each other in the bloodstream. Type 1 diabetes is a autoimmune disease similar to thyroid disorders or any other autoimmune disease where the body attacks and kills all its insulin-making cells. So it has nothing to do with lifestyle or diet or any of those things um, like type 2 can. So it is in its, most simple, in its most simple form, I no longer make the hormone insulin. When were you first diagnosed with that? Um, I was diagnosed about three months after I had moved to Park City. Uh, it was in the year 2000. I had raced for one year at the University of Vermont, decided that I was too focused on skiing to really benefit from going to school any longer, and I took up an offer from the U.S. ski team to support me training full-time in Park City. And uh, three months later, during a routine blood test from the ski team, you know, checking mineral counts and cholesterol and all those things, my fasting glucose was twice the normal level. Prior to that blood test and those red flags, were there any sensations that were different that you can recall when you were exercising or just hanging out? 
as I look back, you know, the, some of the classic symptoms of uh, type 1 diabetes is, um, uh, is urinating a lot um, because the body will try to get rid of it, the excess sugar that it's not using through urine. Also, it can affect your vision. It can make your vision a little bit more blurry because there's too much sugar in the, um, in the veins behind the eyes, um, which can also make you feel lightheaded. Now, I experienced all those things, but on a very minor level. It said my blood sugar is twice what it should have been, but at the same time, you've got to realize that a lot of people get diagnosed at 10 or 12 times what they should be. So I was caught relatively early in, this, in, the, in the progression. Also, when I finished, was finishing up my second semester of college uh, before going out to Park City, I didn't really train the last month I was in, in school because I was trying to catch up on everything. And I actually thought I had mono because I felt so terrible. And uh, what, what, ha- what was happening is uh, my body was still making a very small amount uh, of insulin. You don't get type 1 diabetes and just wake up one morning and not have any insulin. It's a slow killing off of the insulin, the insulin-making cells. And uh, exercise makes you more sensitive to the small amount of insulin that was still in my blood. But when I stopped exercising, I felt horrible. But then once finals were over, I just be like, well, I feel horrible when I start training again. And I instantly started feeling better because I was the small amount of insulin went further, if that makes sense. Did you have the, because you felt better when you were exercising, were you one of these folks that had a propensity to kind of overtrain because you just felt better when you were training more? No, I wouldn't say I had a propensity for that. I mean, I was just going from, nothing to three hours a day was, or, you know, one hour to three and four hours a day was definitely enough to make me feel better. I didn't think that uh, just because I felt good training three hours a day didn't make me think I needed to train six or seven. I just was kind of thinking, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I could see myself thinking that, wow, I feel better when I'm exercising, so I better do more of it. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't actually put two and two together until I got diagnosed with diabetes. And I thought back, I'm like, oh, I felt horrible because my blood sugar was probably through the roof that whole time. And, you know, I'm, I'm a stupid college kid. I don't feel good. And I'm like, oh, I need vitamin C. So you drink a quart of orange juice. And that would be the wrong thing to do when you're of type 1. Is there, you know, and I know a lot of this has been documented. I, you know, back a few years ago, Zach Caldwell would write up really detailed blog posts about how you guys were going about uh, working to control your blood sugar, and you would have blog posts as well. And is there anything just looking back now that you would do differently about treatment? You know, I mean, you're, there's not a lot of people, at least that I'm aware of, that are at your level of sport and, I suppose, manage this. Well, you know, that was one of the very disappointing things when I started researching the disease was that there is basically no literature on elite level endurance athletics with diabetes. Everything that I found was how to finish a marathon, not how to win a marathon. And as you know, as an athlete, there are, that's two very different things. Simply, you know, moving yourself 26 miles versus moving yourself 26 miles as fast as you can is a totally different, different physiological demand. So, 
Yes, if I could go back in time, there's many things I would do differently because I basically had to learn through trial and error and um, through consulting endocrinologists that do have some expertise in in, um, in exercising with diabetes. But for the most part, it's been, you know, paving my own road as far as figuring out how the body reacts. I mean... As I said earlier, I mean, I am missing an essential metabolic hormone, and I'm trying to replace it with a synthetic hormone that is nowhere near as precise as the body is. You know, for instance, a person without diabetes eats 15 grams of carbohydrate, and the body just knows how much insulin to put in, and it can take in all the other factors that affect it, like your glycogen stores, your stress levels, how much sleep you've had, what the glycemic index of the, of the food is that you just ate, whereas I'm trying to do it with a synthetic um, version of insulin that has to be absorbed through subcutaneous fat that doesn't reach peak action for 45 minutes after it's injected and then stays in the body at a low level of activity for three hours. So it's been a, it's been a long, challenging process to figure out the best way to manage you know, advice for the next year coming up the ranks with type 1 diabetes? I think learning as much as you can about physiology, learning as much as you can about diet, and, you know, finding doctors that believe in you are the, are the keys. For sure, I am not doing everything uh, perfectly, and I know that. Uh, I'm sure it can be done better. I just haven't figured out how. On the, on the positive side... Treatments for diabetes, uh, better insulin pumps, uh, continuous glucose monitors have gotten light years better even in the 15 or 16 years now that I've had diabetes. So at the progression that it's going, I'm hoping that it will get a lot easier to manage in time. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of promising things in the works, and hopefully, hopefully, you know, the next type 1 diabetic Olympian has way better tools than I have right now. So here's the burning question. Are you retired? I am not retiring. Um, I plan to ski through the 2018 season, um, and at that point, I'll retire. Right now, I, I still enjoy ski racing, and I know that if I retire, I'll never have a chance to, to compete at the elite level again because I'm getting... I'm getting older, and I want to uh, I want to go as long as I possibly can. And I think 2018 is it. And how old are you right now? I am 35. I'll be 36 in October. So I'm assuming that the main objectives, if you're skiing through 2018, are a World Champs nomination and an Olympic nomination. Is that uh, fair to say? Those are both things that I'd like to achieve. Yes. Is there something you might do differently in this next run-up in terms of training or maybe trying to, you know, managing the diabetes that keeps you optimistic? Well, one of the things that um, I've, I've found is that, that leads to poor seasons. And last year uh, was one of my poorest seasons. Um, I, never, I, never felt that, I never felt like myself last year, um, whereas the season before, I actually felt very good for the first uh, two-thirds of the season. I mean, I 
um, for what it's worth. I won eight, eight Norams and Super Tours before going to World Championships and getting sick, and then I never felt like myself again that year. Um, my preparation for that season was actually really light. I didn't train that hard for me that year because 2014 had been such a hard, hard season that I was just backing off and trying not to overdo it. Then, of course, last year, I decided that I wanted to absolutely nail it, and I started uh, doing a lot more intensity than I usually do, and just my body never responded to it the way I hoped it would, and I felt terrible the whole year. What I have found is the more I tailor my training towards studies of normal physiology, the worse I ski. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. So, you know, common, common training practice with Norwegians, for example, is that they very rarely go longer than three hours. Um, they'll train, you know, five and six hours days, but it'll be broken up into two sessions of three hours and three hours or three hours and two hours. That makes a lot of physiological sense if you're not diabetic. But for me, controlling my blood sugar for one session and then recovering and controlling my blood sugar again for another session and then have, um, makes it a lot like more likely that I have a blood sugar problem in the second workout. And a blood sugar problem is very difficult to recover from. And then I compromise my entire day once I have a problem. So the reason that the Norwegian, Norwegians don't go longer than three hours generally is because, in theory, it takes a lot longer to recover from a workout uh, longer than three hours. So it's better to break it up into two. But if you're me, and the chances of messing up the blood sugar is so high that you're going to end up in the toilet, a lot of the times it's better for me to just do an, an over-distance workout. So I might do four over-distance workouts in a week and only two double sessions in a week. And the more I, I approach my training that way, the more positive results I am getting. The other, the other thing that I have found is doing a lot of short, hard intensities, um, for whatever reason, just tends to make me tired. Um, whereas doing longer steady state work and time trials is a much more effective way to, to make me fast. And I've, and I've noticed this trend by going through, you know, decade and a half of logs. I'm very interested in physiology and I read all the studies and all the studies say that doing short, hard intensities and breaking my workups into two sessions every day should be the way to go, but it doesn't bear fruit for me. So how long are those steady state type uh, sessions? Generally an hour. And from a non-physiological standpoint, it teaches me how to relax and it teaches how to move quickly in an efficient way. From a physiological standpoint, I mean, if, if you read any of you know, the, the studies that Jim Galanis puts up, it would basically say that you're wasting time. But for whatever reason, it makes me fast. And I obviously respect Jim Galanis a lot, and I read, it, I read the stuff he puts up, but some of those studies haven't worked for me. You're sort of the old man, and I mean that respectfully because you're still racing quite fast. But you're, uh, when you show up, it's like I'm sure most of these guys – at the super tours had your poster on their wall as kids. How do you uh, perceive all that? I, I don't, I don't think of it uh, too much. Um, to be honest, 
I it reminds me though that once I stayed at at Simi Hamilton's house in in Aspen, he wasn't there, but um, I I did an altitude prep there before a, can, uh, a a World Cup in Canmore, and I was staying in his room and he had my poster on the wall, and I was like, oh, well that's kind of awesome, and it makes you it makes me realize that there are people that are that look up to you, there are people that look at you as a role model, and you. And you sometimes you're like, oh, I hope all my behavior has been appropriate. <laughs> and then some of the things, you know, and you go back through your head and you're like, ah, you know, um, it makes you want to be a, a, a better role model for sure. When were you cut by the U.S. ski team? And, you know, how did that impact you from, I guess, the spectrum, you know, financially and goals and just, Emotionally, how did you deal with that? Um, I was cut about a week after Spring Series in 2013. Emotionally, I was really surprised. I mean, I hadn't had a great season, but I, I did have a, a one-point fist race. If you look at the fist points and the World Cup distance points, um, there was only one skier that skewed faster than me that year that didn't get named to their respected national team, and that was Chris Andre Jesperson of Norway. So I was the second best gear in the world to not be put on a national team. So that really stung, <laughs> um, especially how long I had been with the team. Um, I do know they use you know, some mathematical equation of some sort to determine how you're going. And I had certainly plateaued and was maybe going down the other side, but I still thought I was still... Uh, very surprised, especially going into an Olympic year. And I was, of course, determined to not let it affect me, but it did, and it made me want to, you know, of course, prove everyone wrong. And um, that's, a, that's a very dangerous cycle to get in because it's easy to overdo it. And I've seen many people do it. I mean, Tad did it that year because he got cut. Um, I've seen Morgan Aratola try to try to do it. It, it. it definitely is a blow. It's a blow to your psyche. And so, yeah, it, it was, it, it really sucks. How long were you on the team prior to that? Well, it depends on how you measure it. Um, I was on development squad from the time I was 16. Um, I was under true support. I, I was, I was named to the A team in two, going into the 2003 season. And I was on development from the time I was 16. Okay. So that's like a big chunk of your formative life at that point. Well, I mean, it was the only way of skiing that I knew. Um, so, you know, coming up with a different support system on an Olympic year was, was pretty difficult. In terms of support system, how do you coin whatever team you're on? Is it Freebird or Team Freebird? And why did you kind of develop your own entity rather than join uh, like a pre-existing group? Um, well, I skied with Maine Winter for a couple of years until their elite program dissolved. And at that point, I was, I didn't want to join another team. Um, I do a lot of uh, diabetes advocacy work in the summer and fall, so I'm already traveling a lot anyway, so I didn't really want to have further obligations. And you know, rather than just saying I didn't have a team, I just made up Freebird, um, which has been my nickname since I was a ski jumper as a kid. So there is no Freebird team other than myself. So and and the and the 
and the staff that it works for for Freebird is the ones that I can get to come and help me. And generally, it's the call calls. Back in 2003, you were fourth in the world championships, and you were again fourth in the world championships in 2009, both in the 15K Classic. You know, how do you look back on those results being so close? You know, we talked over the phone, you know, and we talked about some of the specific, you know, the Estonians that that were on the podium during that race. Um, when you look back on those results, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm 100% sure that Andres Verpolo was doped. I think he was doped throughout his entire career, and I've got no problem saying that publicly. I think it's an absolute crime that he still gets to go to the World Cups today and, and work, work as a staff. Um, I think he's an embarrassment to the sport. Aside from that, um, I look back on those races as um, a couple of my, of my best performances. Um, they came on, on the right days, and it would have been nice to have been a couple seconds faster and have a medal, but at the same time, they were, they were, they were fantastic races, and uh, I don't have any regrets. Do you think you have a top five performance at the World Cup or World Champ or Olympic level in you now? Um, I think it would take a little bit more luck at this point. Um, the sport is, has changed a little as, as time goes on. I mean, as I, as I look back in, in 2003, I was on the, on the forefront of more modern technique. And now as I went to the World Cup last year and I got, saw people double polling, I was like, oh, I'm missing something right now. And I've been working really hard to try to catch up and double pole. You know, the race in Liebrecht, uh, where I was fourth, that was a that was a crazy wax day. And though I was fourth place in that race, um, there were a lot of good skiers that that were uh, taken out by not having very good skis that day. In a scenario like that, I can see it happening again. So if someone was to ask me what what was your best race of all time, I would probably say it was the the next fall in Kusumo where I was where I was uh, fourth place in the World Cup uh, on a on a straight up extra blue day because all the best skiers in the world were there and no one was at a disadvantage. I'm assuming you know, most elite athletes were following the events this summer with specifically the release of the McLaren report, I think in mid-July, and you know, accusations that Russian skiers and biathletes and, uh, were doping in Sochi. Being someone who's been in the sport for so long at the international level, did any of that surprise you? The apparent levels that the doping decree were coming from was was pretty depressing. My suspicions had been that, yes, they'd been cheating all along. And so, no, I wasn't surprised in that sense. I was just surprised at how high up the levels it was going, how, how governmentally orchestrated it was. And... I think, you know, that's cultural. Um, you, you talk to some people from some nations and they just assume that everyone in sport dopes. And, you know, I sit there and I'm like, no, they don't. I don't dope. Um, I would never dope and none of my teammates would dope. But then, you know, they point to USA track and field and, and you're like, well, yeah, they dope. <laughs> so... I find the state of the state of international sport right now I find really depressing, and I don't see it getting better unless uh, the World Anti-Doping Association gets some guts 
and or puts in lifetime ban for blood manipulation for steroid use and Olympic cycle bans for stimulants. The penalties have got to be way more severe because right now it's just a literal slap on the wrist. And it is so hard to catch these people that if you are stupid enough to get caught doping, you should never be allowed to compete again. It sounded like, you know, after 2009, you may have approached USSA about, you know, how do you look into or file an appeal or explore how you expose an athlete who might be doping? I had a discussion um, with Luke Bodensteiner about it. And he told me in the, in the conversation, he said, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me quoting that as far as he's concerned, I earned a bronze medal in that race. And um, he would love to see me get it. And he explained all the red tape that would be involved in trying to reopen doping tests and, and everything else. And at the time I was, you know, it was 2009, I was coming off a really good race, really good season. And I kind of took the attitude of, I don't want to put this much time and this much effort into it. Cause it would take away from my training and, and other, and other goals in life. And I was, well, I'll win a, I'll win a medal uh, and beat the dopers next time. And unfortunately um, that didn't happen, but uh, the, the process is <laughs> pretty convoluted and I, it would be a lot more, I think it'd be a lot easier to tackle if it had been something for an Olympics rather than a world championship. I think it's harder to get stuff reopened for those. What would be next for you after you're done in 2018? Um, well, I want to finish my degree. I was, I was studying psychology and I also, um, would like to continue, uh, work in, in diabetes advocacy from a sports side. I'd be interested in, uh, maybe doing an Ironman triathlon or two. Um, I, I enjoy doing triathlons in the summer. Right now, I'm pretty focused on skiing, and I'm you know, still enjoying it. I think your brother is four years older than you. Is that correct? Uh, he is, yes. I'm just curious what your relationship is like when it comes to competition. Uh, we're extremely competitive, and uh, I think... You know, and we tease each other, and, you know, if one wins, the other person gloats, and it's all in good-natured fun. I think sometimes it can be uh, misread by some people looking at it, but, you know, we like training each other, training with each other. We both want each other to do well, and we both want to beat each other. Making jokes just makes light of the situation. My brother jokes that I've been so competitive with him that, that when I was, you know, one year, one or two years old, the first thing I did when I stood up was I went over and punched him, and I tried to beat him up every single day until I succeeded when I was nineteen. So there's there's a lot of com- there's a lot of competitive rivalry between us, but at the same time, we both want to see each other do well. Do you attribute some of your success to being able to chase someone who is four years older? Coming up, I didn't have you know ideal coaching by any means all through all through grade school, junior high. You know, my dad was my coach, and he honestly didn't, he, he wasn't up on training theory or anything like that. And the ski practice was you went out and you skied um, until it got dark, and then you got in the car and you drove home. So being able to chase someone four years older and stronger, and then later on have someone that was in a college program and actually had some, some training plans from, you know, from Becky Woods, 
um, I started to mimic that. So for sure, it was a it was a big it was a big help. What advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the start of your kind of elite level skiing career, which would be about sixteen years ago? What would you tell yourself? Um, I think I would tell myself that I need to not be afraid of bad results and always race for the fun and the purity of the sport. And sometimes I would get really caught up in my results. And I think, I think part of that was kind of being hit with my mortality, with the fact that I had a mortal when I was 20 years old and kind of having to come to terms with mortality right then. I started racing to prove to myself that I was still healthy and that I was still able to um, be one of the best in the world rather than racing because it made me happy. And um, that's not a good place. If you're trying to prove something to yourself constantly, it can lead to some bad emotions when things don't go the way you want. And even when it is, even when do thing, things go right, it's more of a release than fun. And I would definitely tell myself that you don't have to prove anything to yourself. You don't have to prove anything to the people around you. Uh, just go out and race. Did that mindset like wow i'm racing for results to kind of dispel this like my gosh i am mortal was that the vibe for most of those 16 years a lot of the time i was racing against myself trying to make myself feel better about you know having a chronic disease and uh fearing not being one of the best in the world and like i said racing that way is is, is not that effective. And I think it's only in the last several years that I've, I've gotten past that. And uh, it's a much it's a much healthier mind frame. How does that look from someone who's just kind of, like, say, casually observing you? Well, I'm never going to be able to take racing lightly. Um, because, and, and I think that any, any serious athlete takes their racing really seriously. But you can't let it get tied up into your self-worth. And that's what I have. That's what I've changed. Um, I, you know, I have a bad race and I certainly don't enjoy it and I do everything I can to avoid having another one. I no longer feel like the world's crumbling down around me. And I think it can put you in a really a bad mental place. I mean, when things are going, things are going well, everything's great. But then, um, when things are bad, it's easy to get into a kind of a depressed, depressed mindset about everything. And then it's hard to turn the corner. Anything else? I think it's, it, it's worth mentioning that, you know, I don't, a lot is made about the magic of the women's program and how I don't see it as a magical thing. Um, I see a women's team that works really hard and races even harder. You know, I think that they, they train amazingly well and they train amazingly well together. I don't attribute their their success to magic socks. I, I attribute their success to working really, really hard and working really well together. Um, and I hope that that happens uh, on the guy side as well. I think that the guy's success has been overshadowed um, by the women. Uh, I think if the women weren't as successful right now, uh, what the guys have done would shine through a little bit more. I mean, Simi's been on the podium a couple times. You go back a couple seasons ago, Hoff was actually credited with two, credited with two World Cup wins, and that barely got any mention. I think one what the women are doing is is really amazing, and I think that the guys will soon reach that level of success as well. I'm glad you brought that up because that actually it's almost, and I think we all kind of follow who report on the sport kind of fall into that trap. 
is, you know, and I can hear myself when you brought that up. I'm like, oh, I must have asked that question 15 times last year to the same person, probably. But, you know, ooh, that that sort of magic cohesiveness and who knows, you know, that. Well, you know, whatever, whatever a person needs to motivate themselves to go out and train hard. I mean, if you need a, a great team around you and to be friends with everyone around you to go out and train really well, then that's what you should do. I, I like to use a, a camp I went to. I trained with Norway on a glacier three seasons ago. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, both the men's team and the women's team dominate. I mean, dominate the World Cup. And the women's team um, literally did everything together. They showed up at meal times together. They showed up to practice or, or training time at exactly the right time. They they hardly separated into sprint and distance teams. Um, they, they show up at the meal times again together, and and they were always a, a group. The Norwegian the Norwegian guys, um, you show up for training at you know nine o'clock like you were supposed to. Half of them might be there. Sunbi would generally show up forty minutes late, and then they'd all go off and ski on their own, and you could kind of follow them or go with them if you wanted to. And then they everyone go back and shower and guys would trickle in, eat real quick and leave. And both, both of it worked. You know, the, the women's team dominates and they do it their way. And the guys team has been very dominant and they do it their way. So I don't think that there's um, just a universal way that it has to be done for both sexes or for all teams. I think um, finding, finding your own way is the way to do it. And, this, and the women's team right now has found what works for them and, and more power to them. Okay, so we're just about past the 33-minute mark, and this is where the older Chris Freeman interview ends, and the interview conducted on June 14th begins. What were your thoughts on last season, and what are you up to? It's an Olympic cycle year. What are you up to this next year? Well, last season, I came up short of my goal of uh, qualifying for the World Championships, which was disappointing. I was very close, um, closer than it may have looked. I was uh, fourth and third at U.S. Nationals. Had I been 14 seconds faster in the skate race, I would have made the team, and I'd have a different perspective on how on how last year went. Uh, I had some good days. I had some bad days. Overall, I uh, I'm uh, looking to change some things up in training this season. And more or less hit the hit the early season races in a little sharper shape. For someone who has to be, you know, who has been so dialed into their physiology, and every athlete is dialed into their physiology, but I'm imagining that your intimacy with you know sensations and obviously energy levels is a notch above everyone else's due to your diabetes now at this stage when you're approaching something like senior nationals and this upcoming year is that something that you're still you know a, say a work in progress or is that something that you feel you have dialed in and in terms of blood sugar levels before and during a race that maybe all you have to worry about are your skis well you know i'd like to say that i've got 100 percent control of the diabetes but i i, I don't and i probably unless we have some 
amazing medical advances or a cure, I will never have 100% control of it. I, I had a bad blood sugar performance in Silver Star or Sovereign Lakes, that, that super tour. I think it showed in the result. That was very frustrating. I don't really have to accept that it's going to happen, but when it does happen, I got to get over it because I'm doing everything I can to prevent it. And some days it just happens. And I try to, I tried everything I can to prevent it. And uh, I try to learn from me, from each episode to, to get that much better at it. But um, it still does derail me on some days. As far as uh, getting dialed in for senior nationals and things like that, I know I'm past the peak of my career. So I am having to adapt to different sensations and you know it at this point in my career it takes me i'm learning that it takes me more intensity to get into truly great racing shape and i you know came into better shape after senior nationals than i was at senior nationals because i prepared as though i was a little bit younger and so you're there's there's always a floating scale and there's always more to learn but that's that's what makes this makes training interesting I enjoy the process of trying to figure out how to make my body as fast as it can be. I enjoy the process more when I do it right. I imagine that you're someone that'll never give up competing. Is this your last year, say, attempting to make a championship team and racing Super Tour? Yes, this will be my last year of um, training 100% of my time, dedicating it to, to trying to make a world championship Olympic team. So Olympic criteria um, was posted a little bit ago. What are your thoughts about that and what you need to do to qualify for South Korea? I I read through the Olympic criteria and it's um, exactly the same as the world championship criteria was last year, which was no surprise because they have to submit the, uh, the criteria a certain time before the Olympics. So I wasn't surprised that it hadn't changed. I don't really like this criteria as much as the as the old year-round point system that we had that we used from 2001 up through 2015 i thought that that was a better system because it encouraged high level racing all year long whereas this system really from a domestic standpoint really is about nailing four weekends or more specifically just u.s nationals um it it more or less makes u.s nationals and olympic trials it just makes the later super tours in the year that much more meaningless and and i think that's unfortunate i think one of the one of the best things about the point system was that every race had the potential to count for something and i think that the system didn't need to be scrapped i mean it, it certainly had its flaws that being said, a trials isn't necessarily a bad thing if what leadership wants is athletes that can target specific races and and nail them. Um, but the problem with that, and we we saw it this year, is that people get sick sometimes. You know, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but apparently Scott Patterson was sick, Matt Gelso was sick, and then you know, ironically, this U.S. ski team adopts a system that rewards targeting a race um, but then they decide that because scott got sick there that he deserved 
uh, another chance. Um, so they're sending very mixed messages to the field right now, I would say. How would you change it up to identify skiers if metal potential is the primary goal that are able to peak at a certain time, say, you know, a couple weeks before world championships or a month before, but at the same time collectively encompass a larger body of work over, you know, the annual cycle of races. How would you like to see that changed a bit? Well, I mentioned earlier that I liked the year round uh, point system. I continue to believe that that a tweaked version of that is the system that should be in use. Um, I thought, it, for one thing, it also allowed for the World Cup skiers to have a comparison with the domestic field that's easier than it is now. Now there's just a sep- completely separate set of criteria for the national team to qualify. And it usurps everything that happens on the domestic side. If someone qualifies through the World Cup, they go before the qualification to the domestic side of things. The, the problem that I have with that is that you can only get on the World Cup if you're given the start rights. Now, how do you pick? How do you pick someone with metal potential? That is a hard question, um, and it's, it's such a vague standard that I'm not sure it should really be in use. I mean, I would say that rather than trying to pick and choose who's got metal potential. You just come up with a very fair system and let the athletes figure out who the best skier is um, rather than trying to look down the line and arbitrarily picking people because, oh, well, he's two years younger and he's only 10 seconds slower than so-and-so. Let the skiers race it out and take the subjective parts out of the equation. It, it's, just, it's just not necessary. Let's switch over a little bit to, you know, you you wrote an op-ed piece that was published in Faster Skier called The Substance of Perspective. And from my opinion, it was an evaluation and your thoughts about how the U.S. ski team is selected. And I'm sure lots of people have read it. We had lots of comments. Uh, And I'm curious, you know, just kind of having taken a step back at this point, it was published uh, May 24th, so maybe a little less than a month ago. What sort of response did you get from people, you know, either on Facebook or email or phone calls? Well, I thought one one of the most surprising things to me was the amount of private notes I got on it. Um, I got, you know, notes from former USD team coaches. I got notes from active super tour races, racers. I even got some contact, positive contact from members of the actual USD team. And they were all done in private and I respected it and I haven't, you know, I won't, I won't say names ever, but I think that the fact that they weren't comfortable coming out publicly shows that there is some fear of of retribution um, from you know perhaps they'll be overlooked for a start right that would be discretionary um, because they said they liked an op-ed on faster skier and I don't think that having the U.S. team staff viewed as being that authoritarian whether they are or not is positive for our sport in any way. But I'm curious, you know, if there's anything specifically that someone brought up that you either would like to, you know, give a response to? Um, well, there was one, there was one comment on there, I believe someone called me bitter, 
And that actually made me pause and think, okay, am I bitter? And um, I, I thought about it quite a lot. And I was very upset with the way I was cut from the U.S. ski team in 2013. I think, I think and I continue to believe that I should have been on the U.S. ski team through 2014. Um, and that cutting me the year before my fourth Olympics was just completely unnecessary, especially given the level of skiing I was at. That being said, I have been a pro ski racer now for my entire adult life. And it does not escape me how awesome and lucky that is. Um, you know, I am not bitter about my career. I'm not bitter that I'm 36 years old and I still get to go out and train every day for a sport that I love to do. I want to see other skiers have the same opportunities, opportunities as me. And, you know, I really like my, my teammates on the Vail team, and I don't like seeing them, in my opinion, get passed over. And I felt like I had something to say, so I wrote an op-ed. What I'm bitter about was it was four years ago, and I'm not holding on to it in, in that capacity anymore. Do you see yourself in the future being involved in an official capacity with, you know, team selection, team management at the national level? I haven't put a lot of thought into what I'm going to do um, inside of the sport of cross country skiing after, after um, I retire from, elite level racing after this year. I will step away completely from skiing for at least a year. And if I feel like there's something that I could add to it, I may come back um, in another capacity, but I'm going to take a, a good evaluation period before I do anything else. From, from your perspective, you know, how, how would you devise a system or create a system that would afford super tour skiers up and coming skiers that have world cup aspirations and world championship and Olympic aspirations to get more racing experience in Europe. Well, that's the, that's the big question. And that, that's, that's always been, that's not, that's not a new, a, a new discussion. I think that it's easy to underestimate the super tour. Um, but at the same time, you got to know when you're racing the super tour, you got to know what you're racing and you're what basically what you're doing is you are, you're racing only the best people from one country, possibly two, if Canada joins you. And that is entirely different than racing the world cup, but a strong performance or a consistent set of performances on the, on the super tour shouldn't be ignored. The, the year I was in 2003, when I won the under 23 world championships, I didn't go to Europe until January. Um, I think I won six super tours going into that going before going over there. And certainly those strong performances were indicative of what I could do, what I could do in Europe. But, but then here's the thing. When I went to Europe, I had a coaching staff that really was paying attention to making sure I had great skis that knew my skis and that were working hard for me. If you are, kicking butt on the world uh, on the super tour and you've got your but you're working with your usual coach your usual technicians and then you uproot go to europe and start working with whoever might have time for you 
on the World Cup, that's an entirely different situation. And you're racing skiers that have possibly up to three people helping them test their skis from Norway. So you're you're taking away your out of your comfort zone with support and being thrown into a huge ocean of people with massive resources to make sure they have the best skis. So I think often super tour skiers go over and get their butts kicked on the World Cup or on the OPA Cup more because they don't have the bright support for their skis than anything else. And I can say that for myself, I, I try to fight this, but I'm a momentum skier. You know, I have a great race. I'm likely to have another great race the next, the next week. When I have a bad race, it takes a lot of mental effort for me to pull myself out, even if I know I have bad skis. And, you know, when you're going through time change, weird food, and you have a terrible race because your skis aren't up to par, that can be really hard. So I think we need to find a way to get our best skiers over there with the service team that they're accustomed to, or at least a service team that can give them the respect they deserve. You are, you are pretty much, I mean, I'm trying to rack my brain here, but pretty much the only active skier who is willing to kind of voice their opinions uh, publicly. So that said, any, any other thoughts before we wrap up? If the op-ed I wrote did nothing else, it made it very apparent that, that a lot of people are scared to speak up about problems in the ski world. And whether you speak up as boldly as I did or, or um, just bring small problems to the table, we're not going to get to where we need to as a nation um, by being scared of the U.S. ski team. You know, I've, I've been through so many different coaching staffs. Every one of them had pluses and minuses to them. And every one of them are just some guys that got hired to do a job and do the best they can. And I respect that, but you got to, but they also, they need to remember who they are, that they're not omnipotent and that they can take criticism and become better. And I think a, a lot of them have realized that. And some of them take a little bit more time to realize that. Um, but no one should be scared to voice up their opinion for fear of retribution. You know, I'm in a unique position at this point in my career. I don't, want any discretionary world cup starts i'm done world cup racing for the most part i want to go to the olympics and there is a clear defined way to get there um and the usoc rules will protect me if there's a discretionary issue um so i'm i'm not scared in that respect but i i totally understand why somebody else might be hesitant but i but that being said it shouldn't be that way I have a very direct way of communicating. I always have. And I actually resent it when people communicate with me without saying what they mean. I would much rather hear uh, what someone has to say than have them just dance around, dance around the subject. And that's the way I talk. You can either like it or not, but that's the way I am. All right. Well, stay healthy. And uh, I guess we'll, you'll be hitting the snow in November. All right. Thanks, Chris. Have a good night. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation, and we appreciate you taking the time to subscribe on iTunes.